Amen. Well, before we even read, I want you to understand that there is perks of expositional preaching, and then there are uh, what we might call negatives of expositional preaching. You know, it's in the practice of our church that we preach through books of the Bible, or as we're preaching through uh, during the morning services, these lives of Elijah and Elisha. But even still, we are taking portions of text and we are expounding them bringing their full meaning out for the congregation. That is what you know, expositional uh, preaching is. And the perks of expositional preaching, of course, is that Matt Adams does not have to be inventive. I don't have to sit in my office and try to think of what message I might preach this, uh, this upcoming Lord's Day, but I just handle the very next portion of the text. So last Sunday, we handled verses 1 through 14 of 2 Kings chapter 2, and I knew even before I preached last week's sermon that this week we would be preaching verses 15 through 25. That's good news for you that we're not being inventive. We don't have to hear each and every week the soapboxes of Matthew Adams. And believe me, I have many soapboxes that I would like to proclaim uh, and talk about. But we hear what God wants us to hear. Uh, The messaging God wants us to understand from His Word But on occasion, there are Sundays that I feel as if I am so unworthy and unprepared to handle a text because there are negatives to expositional preaching, which means sometimes we have to work through hard accounts, hard narratives, if you will. Things that we don't quite understand or things we come to and we think, why would God operate in such a way? And this morning, we have one of those hard texts because what we're going to have this morning in our scripture reading from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 15 through 25, is this scene of some young men. We don't know exactly how old they are. They're called children in some uh, translations. They're called youth in some translations. If we kind of scratch at it as we'll do here in our sermon, we can give a, a good guess that they're about 13 or 14 young teens who are picking on the prophet Elisha. And they're picking on them or him for one reason. He's bald. Okay, that is why they are picking on him. They are picking on the prophet of God for his baldness. And in, uh, in the judgment of the Lord, the, the Lord God Almighty is going to send bears to maul these children, to maul these teenagers. And there's much for us to learn from this account, but it is one of those hard texts that we read and we ask the question, why would God operate in this way? Well, I hope this morning as we read our text and then as we expound it uh, together that we'll understand how God's justice uh, and His character is being shown to us. And of course, anytime we talk about the judgment and the justice of God, what is being implied here is the grace and the mercy and the salvation of God at the very same time. And so with much fear and trepidation from your pastor, let us read verses 15 through 25, and then let us handle it uh, together, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, talking about Elisha, opposite of them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. 
It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. Therefore they sent fifty men. And for three days they sought him, talking about Elijah, but they did not find him. And they came back to him, talking about Elisha, while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out to the city and jeered him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, admittedly, when we come to uh, texts like this, my first immediate response is, surely God would not operate in this way. Surely God would not send two female bears, she-bears, mama bears, to go and maul these these little teenage boys, simply because they were making fun of Elisha, his prophet. And if you've ever thought about these things, or, or, or maybe even wrestled with these things, you might, you might think of the, the history of God's people up until this point in 2 Kings. You know, it's there early on in the Genesis narrative that God allows Cain, who kills his brother Abel, to live out his natural days. He's let adulterers like David. He's let adulterers like David live in mercy and grace. He's restored idolaters like Solomon and called him great and wise throughout his, throughout his word. And yet we see a God full of, full of vengeance and justice and judgment against these young teenage boys as they have what, what seems to be a little laugh at expense to the prophet or the minister of God in this way. And so as we begin to wrestle with these things, immediately the skeptic would say something like, surely, surely this isn't what happened there as Elisha went to Bethel. Surely this God of grace and God of love and God of mercy would not operate in these ways or by these standards. Surely he would not be set off by these teenagers jeering, it says, his prophet Elisha as he is obeying the words of the Lord. And the temptation here is for our questions to begin spiraling out of control in our heads that the accuser would come in and say exactly what he said in Genesis 3, Surely God did not say that. 
You see, what we need to do here is we need to take the Word of God as it is the Word of God. We need to understand that these words, yes, they are hard, but they are also profitable to us. And they're here for a very important reason, for us to see the full character of our God and and for the gospel, the salvation of the Lord, to be offered to us. We do not need to hear the accuser saying, the devil himself saying, surely this is not what the Lord has done. Surely this is not what the Lord has said so that we begin to question our God as a liar. But we need to understand that this is the way in which our God has operated. Therefore, the only question we need to ask is what is He teaching us through it? And so there's two main points to our text that I want to highlight for us here in these ten verses. First, I want us to see how the Lord, the God of Elijah and Elisha, reveals His grace. And then secondly, I want us to see how the Lord, the God of Elijah and Elisha, reveals His justice. So as God reveals His grace, we look at verses 19 through 22. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, talking about Jericho, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Now what has happened up until this point? You remember in chapter 2 as we introduced this chapter, Elijah the prophet is taking up to heaven. He's escorted to the heavenly places to be in the very presence of God by the messengers of God. There before Elisha, Elijah was called up into the heavens by what appeared to be to him this legion army of angels with the fiery horses and the fiery chariots. And, And as he sees Elijah and these angels no more, he takes his takes his own clothes, and out of despair and grief, he rips them in two, but he also takes the cloak of Elijah there in verse 13. And he says, as he comes to the Jordan, if the God of Elijah is with me, let me strike this water just like my master did and let the water part and for me to carry back on to Jericho. Well, as we move into our text this morning in verse 15, we see that not only has Elisha crossed there to Jericho across the Jordan River, but he has also come into contact with something like these seminary students that he is to train. These 50 servants of the Most High God, these strong men who will now be under his care. Just as he was discipled by Elijah, these 50 men will be discipled by Elisha. And even as they ignorantly and foolishly go out, even though Elisha the prophet has told them Elijah's not been cast to a mountain or into a valley... It is back to Elisha they come and they know that he is the man of God at this point. Remember all the things that Elijah has done in his ministry. He has raised the dead. He has prayed and the oil and the flour of the widows there in Zarephath has multiplied each and every morning. Uh, He has prayed and God did not send rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again uh, and God sent rain. He called down fire from heaven to consume the altar of Baal. Uh, And he showed his God to be the one true God. He stood in the face of kings boldly and he proclaimed the judgment of the Most High, his God. And all of those things, all of the promises of God, even in his judgment, came to pass. Well, that same power 
that same authority that existed there in Elijah by the power of the Spirit as he was called by the Lord now rests upon Elisha. And this trouble, this issue, this need in the city of Jericho is brought to him. You see, the city of Jericho, as it reads in verse 19, was pretty attractive. For all intents and purposes, it looked like the Jericho before it was conquered by Joshua and the Israelites there in Joshua chapter 6. The walls again were great. The city was filled with people. The hustle and bustle of the marketplace was full. It was a thriving city except for one glaring issue. The water was bad. Therefore, the land was unfruitful. And there's the urgent need of the city of Jericho, isn't it? And it stems all the way back. If you know your Old Testament well, it stems all the way back to after Jericho was defeated very supernaturally by Jericho and the Israelites. Joshua, under the command of God, he speaks a message of judgment, a curse over the city. So we know the story well, don't we? Jericho there is standing with this mighty soldier, standing there with his big walls. The people of God are trembling in their places And they're saying, surely there is no way we can destroy such a great city. And then in Joshua chapter 5, the commander of the Lord's army, which I think is Jesus Christ himself, stands before Elijah and he asks the question, whose side are you on? If you're on my side, nothing is impossible. But if you're going to trust in yourself to defeat Jericho, of course you're going to fail. But if you trust in me, if you follow me, I will deliver you. I will deliver you from the hand of Jericho. And to show that, to show this might in which the Lord God Almighty through Jesus Christ, our Savior, to show that to Joshua, he says, I don't want you to do a single thing but march around. I want you to march around it. I want you to march around it. I want you to march around it. And then on the seventh day, I want you to shout and I want you to blow your trumpets and I want you to just proclaim the victory which is yours in me. And of course, as as Joshua obeys and the people of God obey, great is the fall of the walls of Jericho. And as Jericho is being plundered and ultimately conquered by the Israelites, it's there for us that, that Joshua says that this city will be cursed. And anyone who tries or attempts to rebuild the city, they will be cursed and their children will be cursed from generation to generation to generation. Well, up until the reign of King Ahab and Jezebel, who we know well from 1 Kings, the people have been fearful of of Joshua's God. They have said Joshua's God brought down the walls and Joshua, under the authority of God, has cursed this city. Do not touch a single brick and rebuild these walls or rebuild this city. But when King Ahab, who has no fear of the Lord in his heart, takes over the throne, he commands Hiel and his sons. We know this story from 1 Kings chapter 16. Hiel and his sons try to rebuild the city of Jericho. And immediately, as soon as the first brick is picked up, Hiel's firstborn son dies. And Hiel, out of the ignorance and the foolishness of his heart, the hardening of his heart, 
he continues to build the city back. And soon as he finishes and he puts the gates up there at the great city of Jericho again, his youngest son dies. And this is the curse, isn't it, that Joshua has proclaimed. And, and what's underlying here is the water is bad in Jericho, even though it looks pleasant to the eyes. The water's bad in Jericho because God, the God of Joshua, the God of Elijah, the God of Elisha, has still proclaimed a curse upon the city. And therefore, they call the man of God to reverse it. And so you see how it is here that this solution is brought about. In verse 20, Elisha says, Bring me a new bowl and put salt into it. And so they brought it to him, and then he went to the spring of the water and threw salt in it and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now one of the things that we need to understand here is as we see this urgent need, but also this merciful healing of the water under the power of God, is that just as the, you know, just as the water is bad and the land is unfruitful, we really have a, a parallel to our spiritual depravity. We have a parallel to our, to our spiritual depravity. We might say that, yes, we look pleasant to the eyes, but apart from Christ, apart from the heart being changed by the Spirit through the preached Word, our heart is bad and our works are unfruitful. Fruitful. Therefore, we need someone who will come and to put salt in us, so to speak. To preach the gospel to us so that we might be alive and fruitful again. It's very interesting, isn't it? The language in which Elisha uses here as he heals the water by the power of God. I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. Now when they're when they're speaking of the problem or the need of Joshua or the need of Jericho since Joshua's curse is that, is that the, the water's bad, therefore the land is unfruitful. But now here is Elisha declaring life. Where is the parallel? Well, the parallel comes from a fruitful life in Christ is one that never tastes the sting of death. It, isn't that what he just saw in the, in the calling up of Elijah, the prophet, from earth to heaven? He has seen that Elijah has been escorted into the heavenly courts by an angelic army. And if you were with us last week, you remember me saying that that is the destiny of every member of Christ's church when they pass from this life onto glory. They are called up by the angels above escorted into heaven by the angelic courts, the angelic armies of God, so that death has no more sting for the believer. And so as he says, as he says that this water is healed, he is looking far beyond this idea of a fruitful vegetation. He is looking for us to see, for us to see that apart from Christ and His gospel, apart from the salt being put within the water, so to speak, this gospel piercing our hearts and the Holy Spirit using that preached Word to, to change us, apart from the work of the Spirit, 
We are those who are unfruitful and bad. We're depraved. We're dead in our sins and our trespasses, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But when the man of God proclaims the Word of God and the Holy Spirit uses that preached Word to change hearts, then that land, that person, has a fruitfulness, a healing that will take them all the way to glory where neither death nor miscarriage shall sting it. And that is a beautiful proclamation of the Gospel. It's a beautiful proclamation of the Gospel of grace, isn't it? That the God Almighty, the God who is holy, 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 the God who we will see here in just a moment serves justice through His wrath is also a God who invites you to come Come, anyone who hears, let him who come, let them be thirsty and let them drink from the water of life without price, is what the gospel invitation is here. And it's full of grace and mercy, isn't it? And at the same time, we see God revealing himself in verses 23 through 25 in justice or judgment, because it's here as Elijah travels about seven miles to Bethel from Jericho, we understand that Bethel is this idolatrous city. It's a city who worships many idols. They're polytheistic, we would say. They have many different gods. They have many different idols, which means that they stand in opposition to the God of Elisha and the God of Elijah. They stand vehemently against the God of the Bible. And as Elisha is traveling there to Bethel, surely to proclaim some sort of judgment against them for their lack of faith and their hardness of heart, it's here that Elisha is approached by these 42 teenage boys, if you will, mocking him with the words of verse 23. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Well, the first thing that we need to understand here is that these aren't just some uh, five-year-old little boys. These are 13-year-old boys who would uh, be considered in most contexts of the Old Testament to be kind of mighty men. They were something like uh, probably soldiers that are being trained for for the city of Bethel under the influence and authority of a pagan king. But also at the same time, it seems as if they're just ridiculing him because his head's bald. But you have to understand that not only is it just mean, not only is it just mean how they are jeering at him, that's why the text uses that word jeer. There's some very strong negative connotations here. This language of go up is quite intriguing to us because... Surely they've already heard what has happened to Elijah, that he has been called up, that he has gone up into the heavens. And of course, for every pagan, for every idolater uh, in these regions, they are celebrating the departure of Elijah. Elijah has stood in the face of wicked kingdoms. He has stood in the face of idol worshipers. He has stood in the face of unbelieving kings and he has proclaimed a message of judgment for sin against them. And and immediately what you need to understand is that if you are living with a hard heart that hates Christ, hates His gospel, 
When you hear about the judgment of God, the only thing you want to do is for that person who is talking to you about the judgment of God to shut up. That's the only thing you want. And so Elijah, as he's called into the heavens, the only thing they're thinking is, well, thank my many gods. Elijah's finally quiet. And then as they're celebrating Elijah's departure, then they see Elisha. And they know how Elisha has just healed the water of Jericho. And they say, well, here we go again. Here's Elisha, the servant of Elijah. And surely he's coming here so that he might proclaim judgment just like his master Elijah did. And so when they say something is, go up, you bald head, it's almost as if we should imagine them threatening his own life. You know, just as Elijah is gone, Elisha, you are going to be gone as well. We're going to get rid of you so that we don't have to hear this message of God's judgment from your lips one more time. We're sick of it. And just so, or just as if, you know, just as if Elijah has now shut up because he's gone, Elisha, you're going to be quiet as well. And so as, as Elisha's, his, his life is threatened, these, you know, I, I love how Dale Ralph Davis does it. You know I'm a Dale Ralph Davis fan. He calls these young teenage boys hoodlums. Just as these hoodlums begin to threaten the life of God's minister, God's prophet. It's then in which the Lord, God Almighty, sends these two bears to come out of the woods and tear or maul, your translation might say, these 42 boys so that He might save and vindicate His prophet so that He might go and be the literal mouthpiece of God from Mount Carmel to Samaria. And you think, well, why in the world would God act in such a way? Well, it's just a foreshadowing, isn't it? I know I'm short on time, but isn't this just a foreshadowing of the things to come? If we are to talk about the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we must also talk about the judgment of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. For everyone who clings to the cross of Calvary and believes in the name of Jesus as He suffered and died in the place of sinners and yet He was victoriously risen, just like that's the salvation for everyone who believes, it's the judgment for everyone who disbelieves. For everyone who unbelieves that God would pour out His wrath upon His own Son, it's just a picture of the judgment that is to come. Because that same wrath will be poured out upon sinners who stay in their hard-heartedness. And yet there will be no victory over that wrath. Just as Jesus Christ was raised victorious after three days in the grave, there in Sheol, those who stand against God and His gospel, those who speak against His gospel and speak against His messenger like Jesus, His only begotten Son, if they stay in their hard-heartedness, there will be wrath without any sort of vindication. And so the message here, of course, is the message here, of course, is where are you? Where are you in this story? Are you the one who is calling out? Is calling out saying, I need the word preached to change my heart, to, to, conv- to convince me of my sins, to, to help me pursue Christ and Christ's likeness. Or are you the one saying all of these gospel messages and all of these gospel messengers just need to be quiet 
so that I don't have to hear about the wrath of God that is to come one more time. Well, for those who, who follow Christ, for those who want to live fruitful lives, salty lives, as Jesus says even there in the Mount, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, Uh, They will be those who will taste the blessing, the vindication, the victory of God. And for all those who will stand against Him will taste the wrath of God, which these bears mauling these children foreshadow. God sees either your love for Him or your contempt for Him. God sees how you will follow Him or harden your heart against Him. God sees how you will praise and worship Him or scorn Him. God sees your willful obedience or He sees your disobedience. And He will repay accordingly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would all uh, understand that nothing is hidden from God. The sins uh, that we commit, the begrudging obedience that we often commit ourselves to, uh, the scorn that's in our hearts, or the praise and the worship and the willful obedience that consumes us. You see it all, Lord. And for those who have scorned Your name, who have stood against Your gospel, who have not uh, obeyed as You have commanded them to walk only in Thee, we pray that they would stop drinking from the, the poisonous waters of the foul stream that leads to destruction, but that they would come now and drink of the pure and everlasting water, the water of life that is in Jesus Christ. Let us all hear that gospel invitation to come. All who are thirsty, come and drink from the life-giving well of the gospel of God. Let us believe it, let us cling to it, uh, and let us pursue it so that we might live fruitful uh, lives uh, that will never taste the sting of death, for you have taken the sting out of death in the place of your people. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.